Today we close the book on Romans chapter 8. And that means we are halfway through this great letter. It means that we are also transitioning our way into the fourth major section of the book, the, the sovereignty of God that dominates chapters 9 through 11. And it means that we are leaving one of the most beloved chapters in all of Scripture. And as, as we begin to prepare to leave chapter 8 and move on to chapter 9, I want to take one last look at where we have been over these eight chapters. Now some of you have been here for most of these sermons, but I doubt that you remember them all. I've preached them, and I don't remember them all. Many of you became members or started attending after we began the book of Romans. And so I think it will be helpful for you to to get the overview and the big picture of what the Apostle Paul is teaching us in this great book and where he has been in these eight chapters and setting us up for where he is heading. As we think about the book of Romans, it is helpful to remember the purpose for which the Apostle wrote He had told them both in chapter 1 and again in chapter 15 that he had desired to be with them on numerous occasions, but he was inhibited from coming to see them. And then he says in verse 23 of chapter 15, But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first have enjoyed your company for a while. In other words, his ministry in Asia Minor he considers to be largely completed, and now he wants to move from Asia Minor and a westward advance of the gospel. And taking the gospel westward, he wants to come to Rome, stop in Rome, and then proceed past Rome and go on to Spain. And and coming to Rome, he has two requests of the Romans. One, he wants Rome to serve as a, a basis for his westward advance of the gospel, much as Antioch served as a base of his ministry as he took the gospel to Asia Minor. And then secondly, he's asking that they would support him financially in this venture, that they would provide not only the, the, the physical base where he would stay as he goes out with the gospel, but they would provide the resources so that he might go out uh, to Spain and elsewhere. And again, in making this request, it's, it's, it's important to remember that he's never been to Rome. So, so while there are people in the Roman church who know him, chapter 16 makes that clear, that there are abundant number of people that, that know him. Some have been discipled by him in other churches. Yet the vast majority of the people in Rome don't know him. And so they will be receiving this letter. And, and the response might be, well, yeah, but why should we support you? We don't even know you. And how do we know that you will be faithful to the gospel? How do we know that you'll be faithful to the gospel of Christ? How do you know? How do we know that you'll be faithful to, to biblical doctrine as we understand it from the Old Testament and beyond? And this letter is written in anticipation of those questions. Why, why should we support Paul's westward advance of the gospel? And one of the things that the apostle does in this chapter is 63 times he directly quotes from the Old Testament. And it's Paul's way of saying, and and those 63 quotations are more quotations from the Old Testament than in any other New Testament book. So you think about some of the books that are particularly Jewish in nature, like Matthew and Hebrews or Galatians, and Paul quotes far more times in Romans than he does than in any of those other books. 
than any of those other books quote from the Old Testament. So Paul is saying with that, this is not my gospel. This is not something I've come up with. This is the gospel of Christ. And this is the gospel that has always been preached. This is the gospel that has always been taught from the Old Testament forward. He is also explaining his doctrine. And he's unfolding his doctrine to say this This is what I believe. This is what I believe about the gospel. This is what I believe about evangelism. And this is what I believe about the foundation of a church. This is how a church comes to, people in a church come to be saved. And this is how people in a church come to serve for the basis of the gospel. So this book that is considered by many to be the greatest theological treatise ever written is also a gospel declaration. And it's an evangelistic letter. It has 16 chapters, and its 16 chapters are a delight in the gospel and a delight in the God of the gospel. As we look at these 16 chapters, and then particularly this morning, that the first eight chapters, what has the Apostle Paul taught us in these chapters? He has taught us that the gospel is the power of God for salvation and for sanctification to all Jew and Gentile who will believes the gospel is the empowerment that brings salvation and then everything that flows from that salvation including sanctification and it is for everyone it is for Jews and it is for Gentiles the only caveat being you must believe this gospel in order to be changed and transformed by it and we might simply say we need the gospel because it intersects every aspect of our lives. There's, there's no aspect of our lives that remains untouched by the gospel. And we want to look at the gospel and how it touches three particular areas of our lives as Paul has unfolded it in these chapters. And as we're making our way through these chapters, I want to show you some key principles and key verses in any place. This is, I believe, to my recollection anyway, the first time I've ever tried to preach eight chapters in one sermon. So... Buckle your seatbelts, here we go. We need the gospel because it intersects with every part of our lives, starting with us without Christ. The gospel and the unbeliever. The gospel and the unbeliever. Here, the apostle is answering the question just how sinful is sin? How sinful is sin? Well, he points out in chapter 1 that Gentiles sin. Now, chapter 1 begins with a glorious explanation of the gospel. It talks about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is right in the first verse. He begins to unfold who Christ is in those opening verses, unfolding the the nature of the gospel in the the prologue, the first seven verses. He talks about the power of the gospel. And in verses 16 and 17, he gives us the, the theme verses for this great book. So he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man will live by faith. So here he's already beginning to unfold this, this great nature of the gospel And then in verse 18, he drops what seems to be a bomb and a total shift in direction, or what seems to be a total shift in direction. Verse 18, because, or for, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
Here we have in verse 18 and then verse 19 a beginning of the unfolding of the wrath of God. So you have this great picture of the gospel. And immediately as he starts to unfold it, he says, wait a minute, let's talk about the wrath of God. And it just seems, it just seems almost jarring that he would talk about the wrath of God. And, and the wrath of God that he particularly is pointing to is the wrath of God against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He's, he talks about justification because sin is so pervasive and so terrible. Sin, sin permeates the life of every person without Christ and to devastating results. He talks about those who, who are against Christ. Verse 18, he says, they are living in ungodliness and unrighteousness and they suppress the truth out of unrighteous desire. So they, they push down the truth. They try and hold down the truth kind of like someone in a swimming pool holding down a beach ball under the water trying to push it down and suppress it. And friends, it will not stay underwater. It, it will rise to the surface. And, and the tragedy is they, they know the truth about God. Verse 19 It is known and it is evident even within them because God made it evident to them. He'll tell them in chapter 2, tell us in chapter 2 that that it is known in their consciences. He's revealed himself to them in their consciences. And also, verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they're without excuse. From the point of the creation of the world forward, God's attributes, God's character, God's power are made known. They know. They can just look at creation and it points to God. They know it. They try and hold down that truth because, verse 21, even though they knew God, They did not honor Him. That's the word actually to glorify. They did not glorify God as God or give thanks. So they didn't want to bring glory to God and they didn't want to give thanks to God. They wanted to live for themselves. In a word, they simply wanted to be king and sovereign over their lives. And so instead of living for the glory of God, they will live for the glory of anything else. And and that that is revealed in the rest of this chapter that that they will live for anything if they don't have to live for God and so that they can be autonomous and self-ruling. It leads them to verses 28 to 32. God gives them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness. Verse 29, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. This is, this is where they live. And this is the manifestation of sin. And in fact, God says He will judge them for that sin. In fact, verses 24 and then again in verse 26 and again in verse 28, God says He turns them over to the depravity of their minds. In other words, if that's what they want, then they could have that and they could live that way. And and that is not freedom. That is already the first sign of His judgment again. It's against them. It's not the final judgment. It's not the complete judgment. But it is the start of the judgment that they will experience. So, the life of the unbeliever, Gentile sin. At that point, end of chapter 1, the Jew might be saying, that's right, you tell them, Paul. 
All those people out there, they're bad people. Chapter 2, Paul turns his sights on the, on the Israelites and the Jews, and he says, Israel also sins. So, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, you're you're judging those who are Gentiles who are conducting themselves in this way, but you're doing the same thing. You're just claiming it's okay for me because I'm a Jew and I'm part of God's chosen people and I can do that and escape God's judgment. And Paul says, wait a minute. If you're going to live the way the Gentiles live, then you're going to receive what the Gentiles receive. God also will pour out your judgment, His judgment on you. A favored position before God is not guaranteed by physical lineage. It's about the inward condition of the heart. That's why he says at the end of this chapter, summing up what he'll say about the Jews, he says, verse 28, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly. It's not about physical lineage. It's not about heritage. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is which and is that which is of the heart. In other words, if you're going to be circumcised for your salvation, forget the physical and go for the spiritual. Only when you are set apart for God spiritually and in the heart will you be saved and escape God's wrath. In case the readers might have misunderstood, Gentiles and Jews account for every person in the world. You're either a Gentile or you're a Jew. There's no middle ground. But in case they missed that implication, the first 18 verses of chapter 3, Paul reiterates again this truth that all men sin. All are sinners. Both Jews and Gentiles are people who sin. And he particularly drives that home in the passage we read earlier in verses 10 through 18. And, and just notice the, the uh, inclusiveness of whom he is talking about in verses 10 to 13. There's none righteous, not even one, none who understands, none who seeks God, all turned aside. Together they have, parentheses, all become useless, none who does good, not even one. None, 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 all, all, none. And there, with those words, he's talking about the breadth of those who are sinners. So everyone is a sinner. And then at the end of verse 10 and again at the end of verse 12, not even one. He comes down to the individual. All people are sinners. And in case you missed it, not even you are righteous on your own. And in case they haven't missed that, he wants them to see the pervasiveness of how it impacts people individually. Notice verse 13. Talking about individuals, he says their throat, their tongues, their lips, their mouth, their feet, their pathway. From the top of their head to the bottom of their feet, they are through and through sinners. There's not one aspect of their being that is left untouched by their sin. They are sinners in every way, and that means that they are all condemned. Because all men are sinners, God has a right to condemn all men, and God will condemn them. 
All men will have to give an account to God. That's verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. The law is revealed, and it reveals to us that we are sinners, so that, middle of verse 19, every mouth may be closed and all the world become accountable to God. Every mouth is closed. There's not a single mouth that can raise an objection and say, wait a minute, God, I'm just on my own. I am righteous on my own. I bring a righteousness by which you must accept me on my own and of my own working. No, he says, every mouth is shut. No one can make that claim. And all the world is accountable to God. Everybody in the world, everywhere, is accountable to God and His wrath. That's why salvation is impossible for everyone. No one, no one can be saved of his own merit. This is the worst kind of news that anyone could receive. How sinful is sin? Sin is so sinful that it overwhelms and invades and captivates and controls all people. It's been said, men have never been good. They are not good. They never will be good. A.W. Tozer echoed that sentiment when he wrote, until we believe that we are as bad as God says we are, we can never believe that He will do for us what He says He will do. And my friends, that's, that's, that's why Paul spent so much time and why we spent so much time going through these chapters because until we understand the depth of our sinfulness, the pervasiveness of sinfulness, not only in the culture, but in us, then everything that Paul says after this will not make any sense. It is only when we embrace and hold on to the truth that we are desperate sinners in need of Christ and salvation that, that we will come to that salvation. Sin is so sinful. Sin is so sinful that it necessitated the wrath of God against sinners. Now, this is not polite, but I'm giving you permission. Take a look around you. Just go ahead, turn around. I would turn around, but there's nobody behind me. So, look around. Everybody you see is someone that is deserving of God's wrath. Every driver you pass on the road is deserving of God's wrath. Some of them especially so, but that's another point. You go to the ball game this afternoon, every person in that stadium deserves God's wrath. You go to the grocery store, every person in that store is deserving of God's wrath. Every person in your school, every person in your home school is deserving of God's wrath. Every relative you have, every neighbor you have, every person you talk to on Facebook and Instagram, every actor in every show that you watch, every preacher you listen to, every author of every book you read is deserving of God's wrath. Friends, that's, that's my way of saying there's no one that escapes. We all deserve God's wrath. We are sinners. And we all sin and we all deserve God's wrath. When the girls were little, it was not unusual that something would come up in the house and some of them might have thought that things weren't being handled equitably. And so they would respond somewhat emphatically, Dad, I just want what's... Fair. Really, 
You want fair. Yeah, Dad, I want fair. I want, I want what's right. They wouldn't pay them. You want fair? Yeah, I want fair. Okay. Fair is Dad being sent by God to hell right now, immediately. And you too. Is that what you want? No, you want grace. My friends, it is fair. It would have been fair if God had sent us all to hell. There would be no claim of injustice. This is a hard truth, isn't it? It's heavy. It's meant to be heavy. Years ago, when I was getting ready to start preaching Romans, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and and he said, I've never preached through Romans. I've never taught through the book of Romans. And And I said... Really? Why Why have you never taught through Romans? He said, I never could figure out how to get through chapter 3 without crushing the people. Well, friends, He means us to be crushed. Because until we were crushed with the weight of our sinful state, none of the rest of the book makes any sense. Ah, but when we are crushed and when we are brought low, now there's hope. Now there's... Now there's a a God of grace that can intercede. We must feel this burden. We must feel this reality so that we can hear about the gospel and justification. Here the question is, not how sinful is sin, but how gracious is God? How gracious is God? He is gracious to bring us a justification that is by grace. Because no man is going to justify himself, That's verse 20 of chapter 3. Our righteousness must come from somewhere else. And when we are sinners, that seems impossible. But but when we understand that we're sinners and we appeal to God, now there is a hope and there is help for us because, notice verse 21, chapter 3, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the Law and the Prophets. In other words, we see the righteousness of God in the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. Even, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You want to see the righteousness of God preeminently? You will find it in Christ. And He brings this righteousness of Christ to us as a gift of grace. Notice verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, the one who is just and the one who is righteous. And in verse 24, He uses two different words to emphasize it's by grace. It is a gift and it's by grace. In fact, 31 times in the book of Romans, Paul uses the word or some form of the word grace. He wants us to know This is not of your doing. This is a gift. It is all from God's kind love that was initiated before we ever believed or before we even existed. There is no merit in your salvation. God chose you. God designed you to be His. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And He did it while you were His enemy before the foundation of the earth. Oh friend, this is this is all of grace. This is this is all God's kindness on our behalf. And it is received through the mechanism of faith. Justification is through faith. How how will we be declared righteous? 
Again, justification is is not saying we are righteous. It is not saying we are made righteous, but it is it is to say we are being declared righteous. And how is it that we are declared righteous? Um, we must, Paul will say, believe in Jesus Christ, and we will talk about that in just a moment. But we must we must have faith. We must have belief. So notice verse twenty two: the righteousness of God has come through faith in Jesus Christ. So so it is appropriated through the through the faith that we have in Jesus Christ. Again, verse 26, for the demonstration I say of the righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We maintain verse 28 that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So so justification says the one who who gets justified says I can't do this I must believe in Jesus Christ and and faith just by way of reminder faith is no work faith is not a work that says look what I have done faith by definition says I can't I can't do this I can't accomplish this I am dependent I need someone else I cannot Christ must faith is an, faith is an acknowledgement that there is nothing that I can do for my salvation and only Christ can save me. Now again, this, this section, starting in verse 21 of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4, is filled with an emphasis that grace is received through the mechanism of faith. We, we, we simply open the hands and say, I need something that I can't do for myself. Will, will, will you grant it to me? And the Lord places it in our hands you know, in our lives. Justification is by faith. Justification also is in Jesus Christ. Justification is in Jesus Christ. One is not saved merely by having faith. It's not enough to say, well, I have faith. Well, what do you believe? Well, I just, I have faith. Well, yeah, but what do you believe in? Well, well, I believe in God. Well, that's not enough. Even the demons, James tells us, believe in God and they don't have saving faith. So, so I must have some object of the faith that goes beyond God. And the object of our faith, obviously, is Jesus Christ. Notice verse 22 again. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 24. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom, speaking about Christ, God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. So, again, it is appropriated by faith. We believe that Christ died and paid for the penalty of our sins. He absorbed the wrath of God that was against us. And He did that, verse 25 says, through His blood. So it was Christ's blood that provided atonement for our sin. That is, when Christ died, He shed His blood. He gave up His blood. He poured out His blood. It is to say He had a real life that was absolutely righteous and He died a real death. It wasn't a, it wasn't a pretend death. It wasn't a figurative death. It was a literal death by which He poured out His, his life and His blood. And in doing so, it says... 
um, that God was propitiated. God displayed him, Christ, publicly as a propitiation. Propitiation is a word simply that means satisfaction or atonement. So, so God is satisfied with Christ. So he looks at Christ and he says, Christ completely fulfilled the law. There's no aspect of the law that Christ did not fulfill. He kept all of it. And in dying on the cross, He has satisfied my judgment against those who could not keep the law. I'm content that here for the first time is a human sacrifice and here for the first time is a perfect sacrifice by which I can redeem mankind. Friends, only Christ can satisfy God's wrath. And the good news for us is that Christ did satisfy God's wrath. And so if we want the perfection of Christ to be accounted to us, we must not just believe, but we must believe in Christ. Justification is also imputed. When we talk about righteousness, we need to be, we need to be careful and precise about talking about righteousness or our justification. When we, say, when we say that we are justified, we do not mean that we are made righteous. We mean that we are declared righteous. That righteousness is accounted to us, not that we are made righteous yet. So there are some who would teach, the Roman Catholic Church being predominant among them, that we are made righteous. And, and they emphasize we are made righteous at the point of justification, typically in Roman Catholic theology, at infant baptism, so that being made righteous, now we have a real righteousness that we can contribute to our salvation and we are not dependent on Christ alone. And the, the, the writers of the New Testament have been very careful. In fact, it's just it's focused here in chapter 4 in the repeated theme that righteousness is accounted to us, credited to us, not that we are made righteous. So notice what it says in verse 3 of chapter 4. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Way back in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed the promises of God and that was credited to him, accounted to him as Righteousness. He was not righteous yet, but God looked at him as being righteous. And in fact, that word credit that we sometimes translate as imputed or imputation is used 11 times in this singular chapter. It is a reminder that we are not made righteous, but we are declared righteous, and we are declared righteous so that God looks at us, and when He looks at us, He doesn't see our sin. Now He sees Christ's righteousness covering our lives. And notice the end of the chapter, verse 23. Speaking about Abraham, He says, Now not only for His sake was it written that it was credited to Him. Again, verse 22, He quoted again, Genesis 15:6. Now notice verse 24. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, if you believe in Him, then He will credit Christ's righteousness to you. And it had to be 
this imputed accounting of righteousness coming to us and not anything we would ever do on our own because of verse 25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions. The only thing that I ever contribute to my salvation is my sin that needs redeeming. And and because I only have sin, I can do nothing to justify myself. But He was delivered over to the cross because of our transgressions and then He was raised because of or for our justification so that we would be declared righteous. My friends, if we need our own righteousness to be right with God, all men will be damned without exception. All of us. But if we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us, now we have hope. Now we have confidence. Now we have life. This is, this is in fact, what led to Luther's salvation. He said, and I've read this before, but it's so helpful. He said, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just will live by faith. And then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself reborn to having gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. How gracious is God? He is gracious to save us by justification. How gracious is God? He is gracious to save all of us eternally through this imputed righteousness. He is so gracious that He will save us and not just save us, but save us eternally. Listen to what Thomas Watson writes in Body of Divinity. Though he says there are degrees in grace, there are not degrees in justification. One is not justified more than the other. The weakest believer is as perfectly justified as the strongest. Mary Magdalene is as much justified as the Virgin Mary. This may be a comfort to a weak believer. Though you have but a little measure of faith, you are as truly justified as he who is the highest stature in Christ. Oh, friend, if you have been declared righteous by God, you are considered to Him to be righteous for all eternity. And friend, that is our comfort. We could not do anything for ourselves. And He has done everything for us. So John, excuse me, Paul has revealed the gospel and, and the sinner. He has revealed gospel and justification now. In chapters 5 through 8, he reveals 
the gospel and sanctification. Sanctification is that process by which we are made increasingly righteous. So sanctification or justification says we are not yet righteous. We, we will one day when we get to heaven be righteous. But sanctification looks at that process in between and says we're progressively, incrementally moving towards Christ-likeness, becoming more and more like Him. There are dips and valleys and there are peaks and heights But overall, the trajectory is to move towards Jesus Christ and His likeness. This is what we call sanctification. And this sanctification is characterized in these chapters in a number of ways. It is, first of all, from Adam and from sin. So he says in chapter 5, our problem is that through Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men. In other words, all men are sinners. By nature, but not only are we sinners by nature, notice the end of verse 12, he says, because all sin. So we are sinners by nature and we are also sinners because of what we do. What we do makes us sinners. And we need to be justified and we need to be sanctified because we are sinners by nature and we sin in practice. And, and it is the righteousness of Christ that comes in not only to justify us, but also sanctify us so that previously where we lived under the control of Adam and under the control of sin, now we live under the control of Christ and become increasingly like Him. So sanctification is from sin and from Adam. Sanctification also is to Christ. Notice verse 17. The gift of righteousness the end of verse 17, will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So so righteousness reigns in our life through Christ. So Christ is the means by which we receive it, and Christ is also the goal for which we live. Chapter 6, verse 3, the Spirit of God comes, and He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ by the Spirit have been baptized into His death? So we have been connected to Jesus Christ. We have been connected to Jesus Christ so that we can live for Jesus Christ. So John Stott has said, Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. If we claim to be a Christian, we must live like Christ. Again, we will not live perfectly like Him until we get to glory, but we will pursue Him, we will live for Him, we will desire Him, and we will make sure that our trajectory is towards Him. Life is, as Paul says to the Colossians, Christ for us. Sanctification is to Christ. Sanctification further is no excuse for sin. Chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say? Or do we continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, we get all this grace from God. And if we get all this grace, wouldn't it be a great idea that we sin even more? And if we sin even more, then we get more grace. And then we sin still more and we get more grace. We just, in order to get all this grace, let's just, let's just engage in sin. And Paul says, verse 2, may it never be. In other words, might that never come to life? Might that never be a reality? How should we who died to sin still live in it? If we are in Jesus Christ, we, we don't have an excuse to sin. We have an excuse not to sin. And God has redeemed us so that we no longer live in that way. Sanctification is the process and the means and the purpose for which, by which we are, are moved away from sin and towards Christ. 
That doesn't mean that our good works are going to save us. It doesn't mean that, that, that our salvation is dependent on our good works. But it does mean that we will have good works. We can no longer be satisfied with the life of sin. So as Luther said, good works do not make a good man. But a good man does do good works. That, that's our goal. Is to have Christ living in us in such a way that we could do good works. And he amplifies this in the next section Starting in verse 8, sanctification is for liberty from sin. Notice verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe we also live with Him. In other words, we're connected to Christ through His death. We're also connected to Christ through His life. And we have the hope of glory ahead of us. Knowing that, verse 9, Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death is no longer master over Him. In other words, Christ died. And when Christ died, death could never say, sin could never say, wait a minute, that atonement that Christ paid, a little bit insufficient. We need to put Christ to death again in order to make Him pay again. No. One payment for one time. Christ paid it all. He will never die again. Death is no longer master over Him. Death is is no longer Lord or sovereign over Christ. Christ is sovereign over death. Because, verse 10, the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. The life He lives, He lives to God. So He paid the payment for our sin, and now He lives to God. He, He lives with God, to God, for God, Notice the conclusion, verse 11. Even so, remember we've died, verse 8, with Christ. We're identified with Him. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We need to consider, we need to think on, we need to meditate on the fact that that as sin and death are not master over Christ, sin and death are not master over us. We've been liberated and we are free. Sin is no longer the tyrannical master demanding that we must obey him. What John Stott has written is helpful. Can a married woman live as though she were still single? Yes, I suppose she could. It's not impossible. But let her remember who she is. Let her feel her wedding ring, the symbol of her new life of union with her husband. And she will want to live accordingly. Can born-again Christians live as though they were still in their sins? Well, yes, I suppose they could, at least for a while. It is not impossible. But let them remember who they are. Let let them recall their baptism, their symbol of their new life of union with Christ. And they will want to live accordingly. Sanctification, my friends, is for liberty from sin, not liberty to sin. Sanctification is also enslavement to Christ. Notice verse 22. We have been freed from sin. That doesn't mean that we are not enslaved to something. He says, in fact, we are enslaved to God. And and from that, we derive our benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. If you want to be sanctified, you you will consider the fact that you are enslaved to God and enslaved to Christ. He's the master. He is sovereign. And notice that from that enslavement to God, he says we derive a benefit And that benefit is our sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. In other words, in Christ, because of our enslavement to Christ, we have life. And because we have Christ, we don't just have temporal life, we have eternal life. This is what sanctification produces. There is a reality to the process of sanctification, though, and Paul gives us that in chapter 7. And that is that sanctification does not preclude an ongoing struggle. There, there, There is a tension 
verses 14 and following, there, there are things that I don't want to do that I do, and there are things that I do want to do that I don't. And this is that battle with the flesh, and this is the reality of every believer that we still live in a state where we are progressively moving towards Christ, but we will never get there fully until we get to glory. And, and some might despair and some might feel hopeless. I, I, I have this, this constant battle and I'm weary of the battle. I am sick of my sin and I just want to be rid of it. Notice verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then chapter 8 verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have what I need in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. I, I'm not where I want to be. But even though I am not where I want to be, God does not condemn me because I have Jesus Christ. Sanctification does not preclude an ongoing struggle. My friends, we are in a war. Sin has been defeated, but it is not yet fully eradicated. But there is help for the believer, even the struggling believer, through Jesus Christ. Sanctification is also, I want you to notice in chapter 8, a triune work. The Spirit of God is the one who sanctifies us. Chapter 8, we noted, refers to the Holy Spirit by name 20 times in this chapter. It is to point to the fact, I don't sanctify myself. I have work to do in the process of sanctification, but I don't do it by myself. It's the Spirit of God who sanctifies me. But notice verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life, so the Spirit who grants life, in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So the Spirit has set us free through the application of Jesus Christ's work. So, so the Spirit applies Christ to us and then we are freed from sin and death. And where did that come from? Notice verse 3. For the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So you have God the Father sending Jesus Christ the Son so that the Son's work can be applied by the Spirit. My friends, you have the entire Trinitarian Godhead working for your sanctification. All of heaven is working for your sanctification. Sanctification is a triune work. How powerful is the Holy Spirit? Well, my friends, He is the source of our sanctification. This is, this is what we spoke of two weeks ago. Everything that we need for our sanctification is applied to us through the Spirit and by means of the Spirit. We've been in Romans for a long time. We started the book of Romans on May 10th, 2015. That's almost exactly four years ago. And this, I counted it up. This is sermon number 100 in that series. So we've been here for a long time. But as we think about everything that we've been learning in the book of Romans, there's one great truth that we need to take from this letter. And that is, we have a great God who has given us a great salvation. Oh, our Father, this has been far too quick, but perhaps it's exactly what we needed just to be reminded in overview form of your amazing grace to us. We thank you for the grace of Christ. We thank you for the grace of the cross. We thank you for the grace of imputation. We thank you for the grace of the Spirit who works in us to sanctify us. And we thank you for the grace that in all these things has, has removed us from sin, has 
removed us from Adam, has removed us from death, and has tied us to Christ. This is, this is your kindness to us. Might that compel us to worship you this morning? And might that compel us to speak of you this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow, to those who are still ensnared and in bondage and need the liberating work of Christ as their Savior? Would you give us wisdom and joy to delight in the provision of our salvation? And would you give us boldness to declare your salvation? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.